Welcome to the Sport in History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. And this week it's my pleasure to talk to Dill Porter about his career as a distinguished sports historian. Hi Dill. Hi there Jeff. I don't know how I'm going to live up to that uh, <laughs> intro but yes. Uh, Dill is Professor of Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University where he teaches on their international MA in the Humanities Management and Law of Sport. He also teaches, for now, an MA in Victorian Studies at Newman University, Birmingham. And as well as teaching, Dill is a former editor of the BSSH's journal, Sport in History, and was recently co-opted onto the board of the BSSH and has provided the voice of experience uh, during this year. (laughs) Dill has performed numerous, uh, published numerous works, including studies of Cornish identity and sport, as well as a number of pieces on the history of amateur sport which he's been working on for his latest publication, which is English Gentlemen and World Soccer, Corinthians, Amateurism and the Global Game, which he co-authored with a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Chris Bowlesman. So, uh, Dill, the Corinthians are relatively well known for epitomising the spirit of amateurism and fair play. But for those not in the know, can you explain who the Corinthians were and how they came to acquire this kind of mythical status in football culture? Sure. Well, the Corinthians were... um a gentlemanly amateur football club that started in 1882. They were founded by a guy called Nicholas Lane Jackson, who was always called Par Jackson by the Corinthians and by other people that knew him well. And Par Jackson was a, well, basically he was a journalist and he was a promoter of amateur sport. Um, and uh, he his story, really, and the story that has stuck is that the Corinthians were founded in 1882 because England were doing badly in the annual international against the Scots, which was basically the big match. And um, Jackson claimed that this was because uh, the Scots were mainly drawing their players from one team, Queen's Park. Whereas the English were being drawn from, you know, a number of teams. Mainly, of course, it, you know, these were old boys teams, public school old boys teams and, and, and similar clubs like the Wanderers and whatever. And he said, so the Scots always combined more effectively than the English. So the idea was to create a club that would bring together the best players from these myriad old boys clubs around London and get the cream of, give them an opportunity to play together as the cream of amateur football in England so that they would know each other's game better when they played the Scots. But I'm not really totally convinced. I think that story may have come about a little later because having set the club up in 1882 to play midweek matches in in and around London, Jackson then seems to lose interest. And he doesn't really... it's a couple of years before the Corinthians really take off and they're sort of relaunched in 1884 um, right at the very sort of height of the the uh, debate or the crisis really within the FA about whether they're going to legalize professionalism or not and so they relaunched I think in a slightly different form or with a slightly different purpose which is in a sense well people have seen it in two ways some people will see them as the kind of you know, a kind of aggressive standard bearers for the old school gentlemanly amateur, gentleman amateur, um, going out and showing that they're as good as the pros. I think it's a bit, our interpretation certainly is a bit more subtle, I think, than that, in the sense that it's very interesting when they're launched and, and 
and what's happening at the time. I mean, the FA is actually quite worried, or people at the FA, and Jackson's the Assistant Secretary of the FA, um, and he works very closely with Alcock, the Secretary, and they're very worried about um, these developments like the British Football Association breaking away in the north of England. And I think, in a way, what the Corinthians do is, yes, they do represent a certain kind of gentlemanly amateurism, but they're almost like, a, it's always like a charm offensive when they go up north initially. And it's, and, it, and of course, a compromise is reached. And I think, you know, there was something to be said for, you know, amateur gents playing against the new pros. And so I think, in a way, yeah, you know, become, they become somebody that the, the old guard can kind of rally around and cheer, cheer on. But they're also represent, they're also saying, really, well, you know, there's, we can coexist within this new framework. It's, ne it's never a very easy one. Yeah. So you might see it as a kind of a form of sports diplomacy within, within yeah. the game of the South. Uh, uh, I think that's one way of, yeah, I think that's a, one way of looking at it. It's, it's very much that. And of course, for, because these are the cream of gentlemen amateurs, they can put up some credible performances and they can be, they can look like quite attractive opposition, particularly, of course, you know, the football league that isn't there until 1888, uh, football in London, where I think they play a very, very important part, we can say a bit about that later, really, is... Uh, doesn't really well professional football is in London the South's probably running about 10 to 15 years behind the North in terms of its development and in that period uh, although they're very important as a touring team I think they're also very important as a team as the A team that plays its home matches in London yeah um, because they they basically um, provide I suppose you could say the only first class football in London um, for about 10 years um, and they, they're attracting quite big crowds, the Oval, and they play at Leighton, uh, where the Essex Cricket Club was, and they play at Queen's Club, and they're bringing teams like Preston and Blackburn and Aston Villa down to London, Queen, Scottish teams as well. So, so they're, they, they're a very important part of the development of English football in the late 19th century. And then they also go on, of course, and develop this idea of touring um, by going to other countries, starting with South Africa, um, in 1897. Yeah. So that's who they were. They looked good. They were, um, you know, they used to make a great fetish of how they looked in these white shirts with a kind of embossed sort of crest. And, um, you know, they, they were, you know, a pretty well-heeled bunch one way and another. Um, you know, as Fry says about somebody, doesn't he, as Gosling or someone, he's the richest man to play football for England. And his, 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 um, his, clothes and his boots were always valeted and that um, people say his boots must have cost him at least a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> Handmade. Um, the, your book, I mean, I was thinking when I was reading the book, that my, my memory, which is a folk memory of who the Corinthians are when I was a kid, you know, in the 80s, yeah. football, the Corinthians were probably most famous for spurning, taking penalties and this yeah. kind of epitomized their yeah. amateur spirit didn't it but how much is your book an interrogation of that kind of mystique that surrounded the club well i think very much that really i mean we did i suppose in a way um i mean i, I you know i'll, I'll profess to uh, i prefer sort of honest professionalism on the whole yeah. <laughs> to, to a kind of 
or, and I prefer it when people take sports seriously, which the Corinthians certainly did. I mean, there is this kind of, you know, you see all the photographs of them and they're in the classic gentlemanly pose of hands in pockets and not looking as though they care tuppence about what they're doing. But of course, they were, they were pretty competitive. They liked to win matches. And that was part of, you know, part of the ethic, really, that you, you know, you were competitive but fair. I think what um, when we're looking at these things like um, uh, the penalty, um, they, I mean, the idea was that they would they assumed their opponents were gentlemen, and that uh, therefore nobody would deliberately foul you because that a gent just wouldn't do it, and so you would never accuse you you would never accuse somebody of doing that. Um, obviously, when football became a bit more serious, people were inclined to. Um, particularly they would argue you know, once professionalism was introduced and people's bonuses or their league position depended on this people became perhaps at that level more inclined to be you know to take one for the team as it were you know yeah. and um the professional foul uh, is sort of uh, becomes more part of the game or it's called the professional foul so they introduced the penalty really in 1891 as a way of dealing with that situation. The Corinthians are outraged. I think it's partly though because symbolically that represents something that um, indicates to the Corinthians of people that people think like them that the penalty is uh, that, uh, that, that, that their, their kind of interest or their kind of cause is in retreat. Mm. You know it's something the FA have have been badgered into introducing by the pros really we don't need it why do we need it we know you know we don't need penalties so i think that's partly they they re they realize it's a, it's a signal of their diminishing influence that's one of the reasons they don't like it but i think they you know there is this story there are stories i mean that i in all the match reports i've read and there's um a book by Rob Cavallini, who was the he's the official sort of Corinthians and Corinthian casuals historian with lots of match reports in there aren't you don't get you know you don't get the impression from that that actually very many penalties play a very big part in their history really but certainly the best documented evidence is they go to south africa in 197 when they're really wanting to make a point to the fa um they're joining the afa the amateur football association anyway at that point or the amateur foot yeah to the amateur football association isn't it and um, they're making, they go to South Africa and they, they get awarded penalties in their, um, some, in their first few games. And they make a great fetish of kind of rolling the ball to the keeper or you know, deliberately missing it or something. And, uh, and it's kind of interesting what happens really, because the South African FA, all the referees say, look, these guys are just taking the mickey, you know. Yeah. They're not... You're, you're, they're undermining our authorities, referees, because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're making us look stupid. And so the South African FA protests of the FA in London. I think they're actually members, technically, of the FA at that time. And they say, look, you know, we can't have this. You, you, these guys are out here undermining our referees. So at that time, I think the Corinthians are just on the brink of leaving the FA. The whole thing kind of dies down but it, it's a nice sort of you know it's a nice story that they like to tell about themselves yeah look, um and i think sorry that's very much part of this really yeah it's interesting the way that they kind of control the history yeah. of their own club don't they absolutely 
Well, I think this is why we, this is what attracted me particularly to the project. I think perhaps Chris came in from a slightly different route, but I think I was very interested in how, when it suddenly struck me that, I mean, there are, there are, I think there are, well, there are numerous histories of the Corinthians. There are, I suppose we could say there are three official ones. There was the one that was put together in 1906 by the club secretary, Bertie Corbett, who played for the Corinthians in England, I think, and, um, and compiled this sort of collection in, in 1906. Um, there's, there's another one that comes um, on their yeah, 50th anniversary uh, Norman Creek's book. Now, Creek was another guy who played for the Corinthians, you know. Yeah. Then you've got, so he puts this official, it's been, I mean, lots of clubs put histories together. He does this for them. And Cavallini writes this, well, it's a kind of compilation, really, later on, um, uh, which is published about 2007 or something. But it's it's a, it's not, it, I think, you know, it, it, it doesn't delve perhaps as, as uh, deep as it, it could do, but it, it's useful. Yeah, but then there's all these other people writing about them all the time. I mean, the thing is, they can the story of the Corinthians is like most sports stories, you know, told essentially through the media, and um, so the fact is that you've got people who have played for the Corinthians or are very sympathetic to the Corinthian cause that are well connected in the sporting press. You know, you start with Jackson. He is the he is the editor on, and owner of pastime 1984 i mean it's part it's a part of his biz, business of promoting sport is to promote it through his publications yeah uh, you've got people like um, other corinthians who make their career basically as sporting journalists like fry for example yeah. later on who i know you're very interested in uh, who actually has his own magazine doesn't he from about 1904 yeah. or thereabouts yeah yeah roughly then um, and it's all, you know, and then you've got, you've got other people who are very sympathetic to the Corinthians who are well-placed in the press right the way through. So you've got people like Geoffrey Green, who wrote for the Times, you know, the Times' first association football correspondent, a major figure in English sports journalism, really, British sports journalism. And, you know, Green gets, you know, he had that sort of slightly, sometimes over-sentimental style, really. I mean, he's an interesting writer. But I mean, he, you know, he played a few times for, for the Corinthians when they weren't particularly good in the 1930s, but it, he was a Corinthian nonetheless. And whenever a chance comes to write about the club, and it happens quite often in the press, they're always being referred to one way over the years. You know, it, it, these people, it's like well, to be a Corinthian, as I, I've just written, we've done a sort of follow-up article, we're writing a follow-up article, looking at things that have come up since we've published, really. And one of the things um, we found was there was a, another match that we hadn't realised, okay. 1950. Yeah. They played once in 1950. And um, there's a lot of interesting stuff written around this match, but by people like Green, um, Fry chips in with a, he's not right, doesn't write about it, I don't think so much, uh, but it's, he's, he's, he's talking to students at, and it's the same stuff. All the, it's like a mutual admiration society. They're saying, "Oh, forget about the Hungarians." You know, <laughs> later on, Jeffrey Green, when he writes his book on world, on world soccer, says, "Oh, you know, forget about the Hungarians. Critics could have given them a good game." You know, this kind of thing. And it's kind of, they, they, it is, 
it is a mutual admiration society, I think, is what I've said in the slightest <laughs> way. And to be a Corinthian is to join that society. The, so they do control this. And it's part of an old boys network yeah. that operates yeah. across the Absolutely. media. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to the tours, I'm, I'm really interested in the writing you've done, kind of questioning their amateurism and yeah. you know the gate money that they received in the UK but also money that they were receiving during their tours overseas I mean yes you really describe them as amateurs I mean well I mean Mike Huggins somewhere in his book on Victorian sports says they were really professionals um I don't think that's I if I don't I, this might sound an old thing to say having written this book I don't know if actually I don't think we can you know we're going to prove at this distance yeah. Uh, that you know they were they were sort of um, ma making lots of money um, and and not declaring it. I think I mean a lot of these people that played the Koreans didn't need money to be honest. Um, but what they were after and what they did have, and I suppose you know this is where I'd say you've got to think a bit more broadly than just cash. Is actually they had a pretty good time. You know. Yeah. Um, they were playing a game they enjoyed. They were playing at a good, decent level. Particularly when they toured abroad, they had, they were kind of fated because they were such, you know, they, they people bought the publicity about the Corinthians really, and they were seen as the ambassadors for football generally and amateur football in particular. And um, so they had a great welcome wherever they went. So I think on that level, you can say, well, okay, that's, you know, that was what gentlemen amateurs got out of the game anyway um, but the Corinthians the fact that they were able to demand quite big guarantees when they played matches at home or abroad um, they were able to fund that quite you know quite pleasant sort of um, uh, activity of touring with your pals really um, at quite a sort of decent level I mean there are there's there's definitely it becomes an issue and I think it um, it becomes an issue, particularly, I think, in England, and we talk about abroad later, in the 1890s, um, partly because of what's happening in rugby. Yeah. Um, you do, when they're going up to, they're mainly going up to the northwest of England, and obviously they're, so they're, they're moving into that territory where it's the heartland of the early professional game, both in rugby and football, isn't it? And so they're going up they're going up to the northwest and they're um they're demanding well jackson always says give us a guarantee up front we've got expenses to pay so we you know so they do and they uh, they get these guarantees and you start this sort of whispering campaign starts in the local sporting press it's particularly i noticed it in there's a paper called football field that it's published in Bolton, it's quite important paper hmm. in the 1880s and 90s. And by the end of the 1880s, they're publishing these little kind of snippet paragraphs and they're saying, um, people are wondering why it costs more <laughs> to, to play the Corinthians, an amateur team, than it does to play, you know, a, a, a professional team. You know, why, yeah. why does it cost more to stage that match? What's, where's the money going? There's all these... And then well, who, the person that really latches onto it in the middle of the 1890s is this guy called um, Albert Hornby, I think it's Albert Hornby anyway. And he was the, um, well, he was very well, very prominent sportsman in Lancashire. He's from Blackburn. He, I think he played at some of the early games of Blackburn Rovers, but he was actually best known for rugby and for cricket. 
Yeah. And as in my Hornby and Barlow long ago and all that, the famous... Monkey Hornby, I think his nickname Monkey, that's it. Now there's Monkey. I don't know why. We won't go into that. Anyway, he was the chair, I think, of the Lancashire... Or he... Anyway, he spoke... He was a prominent official of the Lancashire Rugby Union and they had a meeting, annual meeting in Manchester in 1894, I think, where he... I mean, they're trying to hold back broken time payment in rugby so you know uh, you know a miner or a textile worker who's quite legitimately saying well if you want me to play for Wigan or someone you know I'm you know I've got to take I've got to take this amount of time off work and I need some compensation yeah and they're trying to kind of hold that back that tide in a sense and he's saying well how can we do how can we talk about amateurism when the most prominent representatives of amateurism come up north and they demand you know big big guarantees to play and then he says they never produce any accounts basically so we, you know they but they must be money left over yeah but we don't know what's what's happening to it so i mean jackson is very uh has this very sort of strange curiously sort of um well a not terribly convincing response because he's by then running a, um, a club called the sportsman's club in london so what better uh, organisation to investigate these claims? I mean, anyway, I suppose if he was really serious, you'd say, why didn't he go to law? Why didn't he sue him? Because this clearly was libelous, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could have been. So um, instead, they get this committee of the Sportsmen's Association, who are Jackson's friends, basically, to, and the Corinthians claim that they've, they've presented them with their accounts and they've given them, they said, no, no, there's nothing in this. So everything's all right. Well, it's not very convincing, really. Later on, when they're going abroad, you do sense, I think it, it, what happens with all their tours, particularly, and it's notable abroad, that they go, you, there's a sort of gradual disenchantment with them sets in. You know, they, when they arrive the first time, whether it's in South Africa or it's in Holland or it's in France or Brazil, they're sort of heroes and they can do no wrong, really. And they've usually been invited by people bit like themselves really socially uh, must be said and so they go and they play and everyone says oh no questions and they attract big crowds so everyone's happy nobody really <laughs> is asking too many questions but i suspect when the, when those performances well when when football basically improves in other countries um then people start asking questions and they say well hang on you know what's going on here why are we paying the corinthians this amount of money I mean, it's very noticeable in, in Austria, I think, um, this, in, in the Vienna press in the 1930s, when they're, you know, they're, they're in decline. They go, they go out, it's 20s, I think, they go out and play there in about 1925 or something. And Austrian football's pretty advanced by then. And the Corinthians, um, they play. And they, they obviously want to go back because they've had good times there and everything. But there's some stuff in the, in the Vienna press saying things like, um, well, you know, what, the Corinthians want, you know, 400 quid or something. You know, we can get Notts County for 200, you know, <laughs> and they're a better side. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of, they, they, they lose that. But money is, I think that's the other thing. It's as if money is very important in this, in this somewhere. 
Um, and that's why I think what we try to do is talk about Corinthians as a sort of business proposition, really, as far as we could. A brand, really. A sort, yeah. It's a particular kind of sporting brand that, that, that finances, allows them to finance their lifestyle, if you like. Yeah. Oh, I think that's really interesting. What I was also interested in was like the relationship uh, that the club has with kind of the empire. And so yeah. I was really interested in the South American tour. Yeah, in which they kind of fit into that informal empire that Britain mm-hmm. has there, and so they kind of invited over by local elites, aren't they? Yes, they're not necessarily popular with, you no. know, with the lower um, classes in in those, in those countries. Oh, well, I suppose it's the same in Europe too, to some a large extent. I mean, you know, if you're looking, I mean, I did quite a lot of work with Chris Bowles and uh, with Chris um, Pitt and Nick Piercy before I worked with. Well, while I was working with Nick, and we looked, and we talked about, we talked. So I learned a lot about Dutch football from Nick, and um, yeah, I mean, this it was very much the sort of you know the kind of a, the the, um, the bourgeoisie of these countries, whether it's Brazil or the Netherlands or France, the people who look to English, well, to, to to Britain as a kind of example of a modern society, and sort of, you know, it's the, the usual story about seeing sport as part of that, and the Corinthians sort of epitomising that. So it's very fashionable for some people to take up English sports of one kind or another. Um, and yeah, when they go to Brazil, certainly they that process that I was talking about before very much seems to seems to set in. I mean, they like to, in their accounts of their own history, they like to sort of see themselves as sort of pioneers. You'd think, you'd think sometimes they're the first people that ever played football in Brazil, but they, because they weren't, you know, they had to have some opposition or they wouldn't have gone there in the first place. And of course, as lots of people have pointed out, that process by which football um, began, or, you know, the soccer began anyway it was taken up in in brazil and, and in argentina and other places you know it's a much more complex um well it's not just transnational there's lot well there's lots of interlocking transnational connections aren't there yeah so it's not a straightforward i mean we were trying to we, we, we certainly wouldn't say you know it's a straightforward model of transmission from england or from britain abroad because i think scotland's a story another story that needs telling really yeah, Matt McDowell started, but it does need. That's the story. The Scottish influence on that world football is, I think, underplayed somewhat at the moment. You know, um, but yeah. So those tours are important. They're important to certain people, and they they. I guess what I'd say, Jeff, is that they. The thing about the Corinthians is it's a brand that you can adapt and gets locally adapted. Yeah. Um, so it's useful at certain. T- to certain people at certain times, it's useful for the kind of people that want to want to make a point about um, Anglophil- yeah, they're Anglophiles in yeah. the, before the First World War in Brazil, say. It's useful in South Africa when they want to play the Imperial card because they go out and they, they pick up Joseph Chamberlain's uh, phrase after the Boer War that they're missionaries of empire. So yeah. there's a kind of, there's a kind of diff, they can put a slightly different spin on it everywhere. And in the 1920s and 30s, they're going back not so much when they go to Europe, I've noticed particularly, because I wrote the European chapter, they go back to France and to Germany and to Holland, not so much as uh, the football masters, but as people who are kind of propping up the sort of diehard amateurs in those countries. Yeah. 
and then eventually their sort of currency fight you know it loses its value in a sense because they can't perform on the field as they once did yeah um you, you mentioned that you um the, the, the book is co-authored with chris bolsman yeah how does that process work because i know that chris um is based in america now i mean yeah how is, how do the mechanics of that work well it was it was uh press is press um I remember once um, uh, when uh, my team, Lake Norrie, were having a bad time in the 19... Well, when, when weren't we having a bad time? You know, in, in, the 19, in the 1980s, and um, our chairman ran a... At that, that time, um, was a guy at a coffee plantation in Rwanda. Oh, right. And who... Um, anyway, when his business um, interests uh, became very difficult there, obviously, at some point... I remember an interview with Frank Clark, who was manager then, and he said, oh, it's the best relationship you can have with the chairman, you know, um, several thousand miles away on the end of a dodgy phone line. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't, I can't, but no, Chris, well, Chris and I got to know each other uh, through the BSSH, really. Um, and um, Chris was, you know, he had, had already developed this interest in tour, English teams touring in South Africa. and. Um, so you know he he sort of suggested this, and I think and originally there were three of us involved. Actually, Tony Mason was going to write the chapter on Brazil, but then he wasn't able to do that. But fortunately, Chris had some good connections there, including people that could translate stuff from Portuguese and whatever. So he you know he he actually went to Brazil at some point and um, got quite a lot of material from there. So. Um, yeah, well, it, it was okay because we had a pretty clear division of labour, really. Yeah. I mean, we, we, um, we decided that I would do, because I'd already written a fair bit about, the, well, I'd written that thing about the AFA a few years ago. Yeah. So, you know, I was quite happy writing about the British end of things. And, I, and um, then we, um, then I decided I would do the European stuff as well. I mean, my French is okay. My can read, you know, reasonably well, especially sporting newspapers. It's relatively easy stuff to read. I've yeah. got my, you know, I, I'm sort of gradually acquiring a tiny bit of German, but um, I've got good friends who are, you know, reasonable German linguists. In fact, Stuart Allison down the road for me is a linguist anyway, and and so I used him to basically translate a lot of key stuff from Germany for me. So um, that seemed to give me more or less what I needed, you know, I needed. Um, so I could do Britain and Europe. Chris then did the, well, he, as you say, he moved to the USA during the middle of this. Yeah. So, and he's quite well embedded with that group of American soccer historians now. And so he was able to write that American chapter and he already had some way down the road towards South Africa. Yeah, because Chris is South African, isn't he? Yes. And um, uh, and, of course, and I just mentioned about Brazil and um, and uh, going to South America. Um, it's a good job they didn't go anywhere else. So we'd never have. <laughs> there was a, an Australian tour mooted at one point, which didn't actually come off. But uh, they, yeah. So we did. Like, we were able to divide it up in that way, and we we read each other's chapters, and um, yeah, we modified. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Were you happy to be edited by him? Was it was it smooth? Sometimes people can be a bit spiky. When... Well, I've well, I've done quite a lot of this sort of stuff over the years. I'm not, um, 
I don't, you know, I don't, I think people can stand, can be a bit too precious. I don't think we ever had any major disagreements. I mean, we might, you know, um, I mean, we do things a bit differently. And it probably, you know, is not entirely seamless when I look at it now. But, you know, I think you've got to, as I just said to somebody else in a different context, I think you've got to, with producing books, uh, particularly histories, I think you've got to think about how people read them, you know. (laughs) I mean, somebody who's going to be interested in, say, football in South Africa is going to read that chapter first, probably. They're not necessarily going to bother even with the rest of it, you know. I mean, okay, is yes, you obviously want it to be reasonably coherent and whatever, but I think you can be too precious about it because people, yeah. readers are going to take out of books what they want. Um, and you, and I think very often we forget the reader when we're writing. You know, it's very important. Well, I've got, you know, something to say about that later on as well, perhaps. Yeah. But that's, that's so we, we got on fine, really, um, putting it together. Uh, and you know, obviously, we communicate via quite regularly, anyway. So no, we we found working together okay. And um, I think sometimes it means, I mean, you know, Chris will look up stuff for me, and I'll look up stuff for him. We've got a good working relationship, anyway. And yeah. I, was, uh, I didn't find that difficult. And I didn't. And Chris is actually of all almost all the people I've worked with, you know, one of the easiest people to work with, really. Yeah. Um, in fact, it winds me up endlessly. <laughs> well, I'm used to that. Yeah, I mean, I love the transnational sort of aspect of the book, and um, yeah, people who are not necessarily interested in football, I think, would find lots of things of interest in there because it looks at such a range of cultural contexts that the Corinthians visit. Um, do you think, you know, given that we've got the pandemic at the moment, and thinking through the way that you worked with Chris, do you think that this is an approach that might help people to produce more transnational histories? Well, I think so, and I hope so, because actually I think it's advantageous. I don't just think it's a solution to some temporary problems that we might be having. I mean, if I, I mean, I was quite surprised when, you know, you sort of indicated before you were going to ask me something along these lines. And when I looked, and when I thought about my own sort of um, career as a historian, um, I realised that I couldn't have produced anything like as much, really, on my own, or as anything as useful. Um, um, the first thing I wrote in sports history was with a guy called Ronnie Kowalski, who I work with. He's no longer with us, sadly, but Ronnie was a so- Soviet historian. Mm. Um, and um, I worked with him at Worcester. He came to work at Worcester, and he, he was a very good linguist, Russian and Polish and German whatever and um he was um you know we well we both were we both um we both liked football Mm. and um we just we you know we we were good friends we thought well we must be something we can write about together and we wrote about moscow dynamite coming to britain as he would call them dynamo in, in 1945, which was published in the, it's the first bit of sports history I wrote, really. It was in the International Journal of uh, Sports History in 2000, I think. And um, that was really my first connection with sports history, around about the end of the 90s, as I say. And, I mean, that wouldn't have, we were able, Roddy said, this is, why don't we write about that? Because you can, you can do the British end. 
Mm. And he said, and all this stuff was becoming available in, in Russia, of course, in the, in the 90s. And he went over again and he dug around and, okay, even just finding newspapers he'd not been able to access before. You know, he, and because he translated them. So we, I think we were the first people, there was, and I still think it's a bit underrated that article, to be honest. <laughs> I think we were the first people to kind of um, put Soviet and English sources together. Yeah. In one article. So we, we so I, I'm, I was an early convert. That could, we couldn't have done that unless we'd collaborated. Now, again, you know, it was fortuitous that we knew each other and we had common interests. Um, but I knew he'd be a good guy to work with. Um, and I, I think as well, I, it, it's maybe, you know, subconsciously something's sunk in there because I think about, you know, I've worked with, I, while I was writing this thing with Chris and I was doing the European stuff, I'd got to know Nick Piercy because I examined his PhD thesis. Um, and so I was, in, you know, interested and impressed it with his work. And um, I knew the Corinthians had been to the Netherlands. So I said, well, you know, <laughs> can, can you translate some stuff for me? Because my Dutch is not too good, you know, yeah. um, which he, he did. But we also realised that it was much more beneficial to tap his knowledge and understanding more generally. And, you know, I hope, well, we are hoping to write something else um, together um, eventually when uh, things kind of ease up a bit and we can make a trip to Holland. And I think actually it's, I mean, I would, you know, I would have just read what you could, I could put that some, put that part of the book together, I suppose, by reading stuff in English about Dutch football. But actually knowing somebody can read Dutch and actually knows what's going on and can say, no, this association was trying to do this and this one was trying to, it's so, it just opens up a whole new kind of landscape for you. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Chris's work in South Africa, the fact, I mean, yes, I, that would have been much more accessible. But I mean, the fact that he is so embedded in that and knows all those uh, and knows so much about it. I mean, it just it just gives you a sort of different dimension. I think I'm all, you know, I think people should do it more and more. I mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, it's, I'm in touch with a guy called Christian Naglo. Do you know Christian? No. no. Well, he's, he's a German sociologist, actually. Well, he contacted me many years ago, well, say many, probably about 10, um, when he's briefly in Leicester. And um, he's, you know, he's interested in some very contemporary issues on recreational sport, football particularly. Um, and uh, we started this little group, which um, we've met a couple of times. We had a, we met, we've met in, um, we had a meeting, first of all, in uh, Cologne, and then in um, Belfast, and then we met in um, Bayreuth last year. Well, the year, yeah, last year I think. And uh, we just got, we call it, you know, rather boringly, a, a workshop, which I, is a phrase I'm not too happy about. But but it's a way of kind of getting people together across boundaries that are interested in, you know, the park footballer or the yeah. um, whatever. So, uh, and we published something together. He, he was, he's very involved with the local club near uh, Mainz where he lives. And um, he got me to 
we were looking for a comparable club and he was just talking about how they put in a, a new artificial pitch there and how he was really interested in this as a kind of symbol of modernization and how it had been used to kind of modernize the club generally uh, to get behind this project and I said oh it sounds just like what's happening down the road in Malvern Town Brook FC down here where I live in Worcester and my friend Tony Allen who lives just over the back here is the club president in Malvern I go and watch them we have nothing better to do on a Saturday afternoon and um, enjoy it and um, they've they've been very enterprising and uh, they're a very um, admirable club in lots of ways and they've put they've just done this and put in new artificial surface and they're using it as a way of sort of um, integrating the club with the community much more because they can offer them so much more obviously things aren't good at the moment but hopefully they'll get better and so we wrote we've we've just written this thing for uh for a german periodical which is in german unfortunately Malvern town are now celebrating more celebrating germany academic circles than they are in in england but um there are possibilities there you know endless possibilities and you just meet you i think i think you just got to be alive to them really yeah, just do, maybe do a bit of matchmaking even. is uh... Absolutely. There ought to be a sort of, uh, perhaps there ought to be a kind of, this is this is the future. You kind of uh, you set up an academic matchmaking service. We've <laughs> <laughs> um, so been in the BSSH uh, for a while and uh, we've got a big anniversary coming up. Um, I haven't actually asked anybody on this uh, podcast before, but um, how did the society originally come about? Well, my understanding, I wasn't actually involved at the start, and I wasn't really involved. I mean, it was well established by the time I first went. I, I can't honestly remember which was the first BSSH conference I went to. I certainly went to one at Southampton that was round about, and I, th and I think I went to one in Leicester that was round about 2000-ish. Yeah. Um, but uh, my understanding from people like Richard Holt and um, do you know Charles Core, Chuck Core, who oh, yeah. West Ham, yeah, um, who were there, and Tony Mason, who was around, uh, was that it's you know it began in in around about the eighties. Richard Cox, who I've been in touch with recently, who I think has a probably quite a good claim to being one of the sort of early movers here, if not the founder um he 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 was working i think there were kind of two things coming together at that point in the late it must have been the 80s i think my impression is that two things were happening one was that um you know the kind of world of cultural history was exploding and sport was clearly the history of sport was a sort of became a, a sort of sub branch of that and secondly um i think what's happening is that um, you know, physical education was being, um, well, the nature of physical education, particularly in higher education, was changing. It was becoming, uh, you know, there was more emphasis on um, it as an academic subject as well. And you've got a lot of people who were coming in, who were interested in sport and history, who were developing, who were coming from that sort of side of things. So people like, um, who I got to know through the BSSH really, people like Frank Galligan would have come in by that route, who were really uh, involved as teachers and sort of from a pedagogic point of view, but were also 
you know, um, had, you know, interest over pursuing. I mean, Frank wrote um, a PhD. Actually, I knew Frank because he was a PhD student at Worcester. And he wrote about, um, he was writing about gymnastics in Birmingham at the end of the 19th century. So, I mean, there were people who were realising there was, there was a subject there somehow, or there's, there was, there was a confluence of interests. Or a body of work coming together. Yeah, and there were, of course, always a lot of um, people who were, yeah, I mean, they, so they, it wasn't always, I guess, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I've seen some of the early photographs of, from the 80s, and it's always people like Tony Mason, I mean, his book came, there was a little splurge of publications, um, uh, Ray Van Ploo's book about professional uh, um, oh, the turf his book about racing it was sort of round about early 80s wasn't it tony mason's book was 1980 mm. um uh you know there was just there was quite a lot of writing going on about cricket people like keith sandiford mm-hmm. um and so you know that it was developing it was rather male i suspect it was a bit of a boys club at that point um not much doubt about that um, but by the time I got interested, which was sort of the 1990s, um, it was seen pretty well established, but it was very much, I was, you know, you're very conscious that um, there were those two kind of, two groups coming in, really, mm. into it academically. And there were a few other people who were just interested in the history of sport. Um, I mean, Frank, you know, is great servant of the BSSH, and, you know, we owe him a lot. He did turn up to loads and loads of meetings, apart from anything else. And, um, you know, he ran the newsletter to me for a long time. Uh, I think somebody else, you know, John, is it Paul, John, Paul Terry, Dave Terry, who I didn't really know very well, but I mean, he was a, he was a feature of a lot of the early meetings I went to. And he, he, Frank knew him better than I did. Um, obviously people like, and uh, I think we should, people have been very loyal supporters who are, um, people like John Powell, who turned up year after year and um, wrote a very interesting self-published history of Paul Town Football Club, which I think is a really interesting little book in its own right. I mean, he would he'd be very modest about it and he was simply trying to recall the history of the club and the supporters. But he's a, he's a bright guy and he said some interesting things during the course of that, you know, but I'm certainly cannibalised <laughs> for various things I've written. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a little bit smaller, I think, probably, uh, than it's become. Um, it's become much more sort of, um, it's, it, it, the composition has changed, I mean, in good ways. Um, I think perhaps we've, sub, it's become a, I think we've always got to be aware as, you know, as people with a kind of academic background, because not everyone can get a job in academia that wants it these days, but that we're not, uh, that we don't just talk to each other, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember being, there's, I remember when Martin Johns was um, chairman or, yeah, but I think it was when he was chairman. So we were putting together the programme for a conference somewhere and there were a few groans when somebody was mentioned. And Martin said, oh, you know, they got every right. <laughs> and he was absolutely, he was absolutely correct to pull us yeah. up. And he said, yeah, they're society members. This is for the members, you know, and we don't want to exclude people. 
I think that's yeah. I think that's one of the strengths of the society is that yeah. we can bring sort of academics and um, non-academics together as a society. Absolutely, because sport kind of it is one of those subjects that um, you get a lot of non-academic writing, which isn't necessarily kind of publishable in our terms, but kind of provides the raw material, doesn't yeah. it? Well, it's, it's Raphael Samuel's old point, isn't it? About, you know, does that, I can't remember the, the collection of essays that he brought out, but there was one about, there's one great chapter in it, or one great essay about what we owe to collectors of matchboxes and, and yeah. people who have odd interests and and how these people, you know, how, how, you know, how people's enthusiasms um, can be so useful. And I think, you know, you, yeah, that that's that's something you've got to, you've got to respect I think and try and keep in there I don't think we're always I think because you know we have to the way it's organized now I mean postgrad students um who you know hope can continue to find a home there you know they've, they've got an interest in obviously they want to get their work out there and the conference and things is one way of doing it um I do think it, as well we've got to be careful as historians we don't sort of develop some sort of way of writing about sports history that takes it out of other people's range. I mean, I'm not, so, I'm, I never, I don't think I've ever write down for anybody, you know, I just assume, I'm like a Corinthian here. I'll assume, <laughs> I'll assume they're going to more or less, and if they don't understand, they can ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think sometimes we've got to watch, just watch that tendency of being, talking to each other a little bit too much, you know? Yeah. Um. And you're you're involved with organising the society's archives at the moment. So yes. how's, that, how's that going? Well, I don't quite know how. I'm trying to remember how it came about, but I've ended up with this this job. Well, we, I think we decided with the anniversary coming up, it would be quite useful to see what we had, and we didn't have a, a formal archive as such. And of course, um, particularly with um, with new technology and whatever. I mean, at one time, societies had sort of minute books and uh, whatever. And obviously, we can preserve materials now, but in the, I think there's, a, there's going to be kind of intervening period that is in the 19, late 80s, early 90s, and a little bit beyond perhaps, where historians are going to find that there's gaps all over the place because people were between modes of recording, really. Yeah. They, they were no longer writing or typing and copying minutes but they were not and they 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 didn't preserve them really as well as they might um but um yeah it's what a we put out a kind of call to see what's around there really um i had one uh, deposit which i think it was partly it came about because malcolm mclean had some papers where, and which he left which were basically fairly formal papers that were went out to the um he would have got as a member of the committee anyway really but it it was a start uh neil carter had been gathering a few bits and pieces and he had been in touch certainly with richard cox um who was as i mentioned before sort of founder of the one of the founders of the society um and so neil gave me a little bit of stuff that he had um so the case the, the thing was then where to deposit it and um well, De Montfort University's Special Collections Department here at the library were willing to take this on. They're trying to build up their sports collection generally. And they've got, they've just got the uh, 
records of the Amateur Boxing Association, for example. Oh, right. Um, and I mean, you know, I, obviously I had a connection, so I simply asked, the, and I was lucky because they said, yeah, you know, and they've been very helpful. But of course, they haven't had to do too much so far. No. Um, the person, the most hopeful lead we've had so far is Richard Cox, who is, who I spoke to, unfortunately, this, this was just before the lockdown. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, I got quite excited really about what he said he had in the way of material and what he was prepared to, to put into the archive. So um, he was, I left it with him that he was sorting things out. Um, he was getting you know some big boxes of stuff together and he was going to come well we've been in touch he's still doing it um but um when when this is all over um i anticipate sending a van up from de montfort to collect this stuff and bring it back so um that will tell us a lot i think about the early days mm. uh, particularly and i think it you know it might unravel some of the kind of mysteries about when did it actually come when was it actually founded that we were talking about last time we met i think as a committee well maybe uh you can give us all a, a paper on it at the uh at the conference next year because well that would be nice i mean yes it would be nice i mean they would it'd be daunting because there might even still be a few people around who can remember <laughs> or what could what would happen i mean richard holt was there certainly in the very early days um i see tony mason still down again um but and he probably he probably does remember quite a lot of that. I've just written an intro to a new edition of his. Well, it's forty years since his book on football came out. Yeah. So we we decided to um, at Routledge um, we've got this new soccer histories thing that we're trying to develop. And so one way of launching it, we thought, was to, as it was a kind of seminal work, which I, I mean, you know, Tony is as realistic as anybody and he would acknowledge that you know there's more to be said now than he said then but it's still an important book in its way so we're we're reprinting that because it was a difficult book to get hold of anyway and um i've written a sort of um introductory essay trying to place it in its kind of historiographical context so and tony's still speaking to me so (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways, yeah, so that should come out some, well, I don't know, it's Routledge are now clearing, there's a few copyright issues to clear, which are a bit difficult because the original publishers are no longer with us. Right, okay. Uh, But once, we're almost there, I think, with that process, and once it's there, it's going ahead. Well, it's great. Um, I'll look forward to to reading that, and um, I'll look forward to, fingers crossed, celebrating with a big party. um, That will be good. In 2021. Um, once all of this nonsense is over um, yeah. thanks for uh, thanks for zooming in today Bill and uh, let's hope the next time we chat it'll be in happier times uh, absolutely yeah it'd be great to get together again um, yeah. I mean conferences have always been a something to look forward to and you know a proper meet, meeting on this occasion would be especially appropriate really uh, who knows but I, I think we have a fighting chance September 2021 yeah, I might be able to get into the archives at Twickenham while I'm there. As well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should flag up that it will be in Twickenham. Um, yeah, at the end of September, I think. Yeah, uh, the announcement yeah. will go out in, in due course, I'm sure. Well, that's all the time we've got uh, for today. Um, so it's goodbye from both of us today. Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye.